Okay, turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 10. You probably thought we'd never get out of chapter 9, but uh, you'll be saying the same thing by the time we finish chapter 10. <laughs> and we want to start, let me read verse 1. Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. <clears throat> so we find ourselves beginning a new section of Matthew's Gospel as we enter chapter 10. This chapter begins with the calling and the commissioning of the 12 disciples. And then in the second verse, it says they are sent as apostles. Uh, it's a change in the pattern of Jesus' ministry. Rather than being the only one to share the gospel, he now trains these 12 men and sends them out. It's a new phase in Matthew's presentation of the work of Jesus the King. Now remember that what that Jesus has told these 12 men at the end of chapter 9, that Israel, and certainly the whole world, is a vast field ready to be harvested. And he says in 937, the harvest is plentiful. Uh, he saw the multitudes that were coming to him. And as he looked at them, he saw them as a field ready to be harvested. And as he looks on mankind and as that field, he knew there was much more wheat to be harvested and brought into the kingdom. And just as surely as there were those in the field who were tares, who someday will be gathered by the angels who will reap them to be burned in judgment, but until then, he's sending out his human reapers into the field to harvest the wheat that is brought into the kingdom. So he calls on his disciples in verse 38 to pray that God will send forth laborers into the harvest. And he wants more and more of his followers to become laborers in his harvest. And so as we enter the new dimension in the Gospel of Matthew, as the Lord adds these 12 men to his own ministry, uh, they are going to increase the potential for reaching the wheat that is in the field that inevitably will be harvested. <clears throat> and so in 938, he says, pray. Notice that in uh, verse 6 of chapter 10, he says, go. And then in verse 7, he says, preach. The same ones who are praying become the ones who are going and preaching. And as they begin to see the world as Christ saw it, looking out on lost humanity, through his eyes, with his heart of compassion, they begin to see the, uh, that they themselves were called to go out and warn the lost world of the coming judgment and the need to repent and come into the Lord's kingdom. As vital as it is, prayer is not all that is required. The believer who prays for the Lord to send out workers into the harvest but is unwilling to go himself is a hypocrite. He's praying insincerely. The Christian who genuinely prays for God to send laborers into the harvest is also willing to be a laborer. He's also willing to go if the Lord should command it of him. One Bible scholar recounts a story that at the very start of the Reformation, Martin Luther had a close friend who was another monk. They were both part of the Roman Catholic Church, of course. It was the only church then. And Luther's friend agreed with him that justification was not by works, but, uh, and not by works of the flesh mixed with grace, but that justification was by faith alone, because that's what the Bible said. So when Luther determined that he was going to seek to reform the Roman Catholic Church, he and his friend reached an agreement. The... They agreed that Luther would be the one that would go into the dust and heat of the battle for the truth. He would be the confronter, and his friend would be his prayer supporter, seeking God on behalf of Luther. And so that's how they began. And as you know, the struggle was very fierce for Martin Luther. And he would report back to his friend, and his friend would intensify his prayer on his behalf. And then one night, his friend had a dream and he dreamed that he saw a vast cornfield that stretched over the whole world. And as he looked over the field, he saw one solitary man going through the field trying to gather all the corn, which is an impossible, heartbreaking task. 
And then he saw the reaper's face and it was Martin Luther. And he woke up and he immediately recognized what he had to do. And he immediately went to Luther and told him, I must leave my prayers and get to work. And so he set aside the pious solitude of the monastery and went out into the world and joined Luther in the field to battle and labor for the harvest. I think that's where we are in Matthew 10. <clears throat> that one solitary person, Jesus Christ, has moved through the field alone until now. And now he's going to call 12 others as ministers. He's going to commission them as his personal ambassadors and send them out. And so what we find in this chapter is the record of their initial sending to assist in warning men and women of coming judgment and calling them into the kingdom. Can you give me some water? The major thrust of the passage begins in verse 5. And so from there until the end of the chapter, uh, we find instructions about discipleship, instruction about what happens when you go to minister for Christ. There's tremendous insight into what it is to preach and represent the Lord Jesus Christ in the world. But before we get to verse 5, we have to look at the first four verses. They're very simple in terms of what they say. And yet there are some details here that are important for us to understand. They aren't necessarily obvious to the superficial reader, but we want to dig in and find those gems that are here to be discovered. And what we will see is that there are three essentials of the commissioning of this, these men. First, there was their initiation. We'll talk a lot about that. Then there will briefly see their impact, and then we will see their identity. Uh, now, obviously, we're not getting to all those four verses because we only read verse 1. So don't get your hopes up too high. Now, as we go in this chapter, please don't look at this as something that applies only to these men. I want you to think with me about some of the things behind his preparation and calling of these men and see how they apply in your own life. We're also his disciples. He commanded us in Matthew 28, 19 to go and make disciples. And Jesus gives us the pattern, the example of how to do that right here in this chapter. So I want you to learn how Jesus <clears throat> discipled and trained the 12 so that you'll understand how he wants to disciple you and how you are to disciple others. This chapter is our Lord's discipling pattern. That is how he trained the 12. So let's begin with the apostles' initiation. Look at the beginning of verse 1 again. It says, Jesus summoned his 12 disciples and gave them authority. The word summoned translates a compound Greek word which combines two words, one which means to call and the other which means toward. So the idea is to call to oneself, to call one toward yourself. It's an intense word that means to call someone toward you so that you are face to face with them. The same words used in Acts 2.39 of God calling the Gentiles to himself through the gospel. It's used in Acts 13.2 of Barnabas and Paul being called to the work as missionaries. It's used in Acts 16.10 of Paul being called to proclaim the gospel to the Macedonians. It is the idea of a face-to-face -face calling in order to receive an official commission from the one who is calling. It's not a casual request. Jesus is summoning these men to him in order to give them an official commission. So it's now time for the commissioning of the disciples. And you'll notice that while Matthew refers to them as disciples in verse 1, what does he call them in verse 2? Apostles. They were disciples when they were learning. They were apostles when they were sent. The word translated disciple means student or pupil or learner. The word apostolos, and see I wrote it up here on the board for you. Uh, we get our English word apostle from that, obviously. It means one sent as a messenger or agent bearing a commission. Yes? Uh, apostate 
Is that attached to this word too? I mean, well, it's one who it goes away negative, from. It has a yeah. negative but it's not. It's not attached to it. No. No, no. I mean, it's related and it's. Well, only only by the, yeah, yeah, only by the Greek structure of it, but not the root there. <clears throat> Yes, it's one who is sent as a messenger or agent bearing a commission. The term is much more than merely a student or learner. It referred to one who is an official representative of the one who commissioned them, sort of like an ambassador. So first, these 12 were students of Christ. Then they are the commissioned messengers of Christ. So this is their transition from being mere learners in verse 1 to being sent messengers in verse 2. Jesus is calling them to work with him. He's calling them to gather some of the lost, injured, exhausted, helpless, shepherdless sheep and bring them to the true shepherd. It's time for them to evangelize, to preach the kingdom, to go, as it says in verse 6, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In order to, verse 7, preach, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So this is a critical point in the training of the twelve. And I want us to focus on this for a bit. There are basically four phases in Christ's training of the twelve. <clears throat> We're going to look at these briefly. First was their conversion and initial calling to faith. And in that initial calling, they were called to believe. They were called to Christ in a conversion sense. But then after that, they went back to their jobs, back to their secular employment, back to their homes. Then there came a second phase in which he called them to leave their occupations and follow him and be trained for ministry. That's recorded for us in Matthew 4, verses 18 to 22, where we're told that he saw two brothers Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, they had already been saved in the sense that they had already affirmed that he was the Messiah, as they did in John 1. But now he's calling them to leave their secular employment, their homes, and to follow him exclusively and totally. This is their calling, if you will, into ministry. They're called away from their livelihood and everything that they ever knew about making a living, and they were called to follow Jesus around for three years to be trained. This is their schooling. And by the way, their training involved a lot of people because whenever, wherever Jesus went, there was a large number of disciples. Some stuck around, some left. But in the midst of this group were these 12 guys, and while they were being trained along with everyone else, they received more specific training because Jesus knew that these 12 were special. Now there's a third phase of their training and that is that they are sent out and that is where we come to in chapter 10 verse 1. This is not the final phase. This is the third phase. Mark tells us they were sent out two by two. They weren't ready to go on alone yet. They had to have another along with them for support. And during this time, Jesus was always there, and they were always checking back in, letting him know how it was going. You might, I mean, you might call it their internship. Uh, it was sort of like a short-term missions assignment and an internship in which they got a feel for what ministry would be like. And then after a period of time doing that, they returned to Jesus and they remained with him again a long time, being taught more and more. Then there was the fourth phase of the training of the twelve, and that took place after Jesus' resurrection and ascension back to heaven. When Jesus went back to heaven, who did he send back? 
the Holy Spirit, who entered in them, and they then scattered and went all over the world, discipling the nations. That was the final sending of the twelve. So there was a conversion phase, there was a calling and training phase, there was an initial sending phase, and then there was a final sending phase. And as we come to chapter 10, we're in the third phase, the initial sending phase. He doesn't let them out very far, but just far enough to learn where the trouble's going to come from. This is their initiation into ministry, so that's why I call it their initiation. They were handpicked by Jesus from all the other disciples who followed him. He knew they were to be the ones. Think about this. He even handpicked Judas because that fit God's prophetic plan as well. He chose these 12 men to be the ones who would go throughout the world to establish the church and verify his messiahship and affirm his resurrection from the dead as well as his atoning death. He taught them for three years and would send them out periodically to put into practice what he had taught them so that they would become the representatives of the gospel. Now, in the process of training them, Jesus was basically overcoming five evident problems that they had. These five problems are very common in the discipling process. And as we look at how the Lord works in our lives, we can see how parallels to how he worked in their lives. And the one thing that really encourages me personally as these guys really didn't have a lot to offer him to work with. And I think that's true of me too, and I'm sure you would say the same about yourselves. This is really a rough bunch of guys. Uh, in fact, they were generally rather ordinary, or you might even say they were substandard. If you think about it, if this gospel wasn't inspired by God, but was written by some fraudulent religious guy he would have never had Jesus pick this bunch to disciple. And if Jesus was merely a fraud trying to convince everyone of his qualifications to be the Messiah and trying to convince everyone that he was God, he would have never picked 12 characters like this bunch to hang around with him. Because throughout the entire story of their three years with him, even when you get to the end, <clears throat> you're still wondering at their stupidity and their bullheadedness and their lack of understanding. If you had been an outside observer who was able to watch this group during their time with Jesus, you would truly wonder whether or not he was going to be able to pull it off with these guys. Some people would question his divinity on that basis alone. So it's a marvelous mark of authenticity and honesty that Matthew, as well as the rest of the gospel writers, did not try to mask the faults and the failures of these 12 men. And it's a wonderful look into the compassionate heart of Jesus who deliberately chose weak men who rarely understood him, who were immature in their faith, and who were very unreliable because of their constant pettiness and squabbling with one another. And so we see the grace of God toward us also as we see Christ so lovingly and patiently dealing with men who were so weak and unresponsive. It certainly encourages, encouraging to me because it gives me hope that the Lord will somehow be able to conform me to the image of Christ despite my many failures and shortcomings. And I hope you feel the same way. Because let me tell you, if you don't, if you think that God ought to be glad he's got someone as wonderful and talented as you on his side, then I hate to tell you this, but you're not actually on his side. Both James 4, 6 and 1 Peter 5, 5 say that God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We saw in the previous chapter of Matthew, in chapter 9, verse 13, that Jesus said he didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. He isn't after those who think they're righteous. He's after those who know they're not. Who, those who recognize what worthless sinners they truly are 
and who, despite their fumbling and bumbling, desire above all else to know and follow him and obey him, and in fact, they do so. So as we move on in to examine in more detail the initiation and training of these 12 guys, let's look at some of the foundational aspects of that process so that we understand the background regarding their chosen, uh, their, their being chosen to be Jesus' special 12. First of all, note that they were chosen sovereignly by God. They were chosen sovereignly. This is apparent. They play a critical role in the history of the world and in eternity as well. And God laid it all out. It says in verse 1, Jesus summoned his 12 disciples. I like the way Mark 3.13 expresses it. It says, he summoned those whom he himself wanted. It was his choice, his will, his sovereign purpose. There was no executive search by an outside <laughs> firm. He didn't look over the crowd, uh, over this big crowd of his followers and say, hey, how many of you guys would like to be apostles? Raise your hand. Uh, it wasn't like that. It wasn't a matter of, hey, you guys aren't doing that well with your fishing business. How would you like to go into the ministry? There was nothing like that. These guys were called by the sovereign will and purpose of God. He knew the men he wanted, and they weren't consulted. And neither was anyone other than God the Father consulted. Their choosing was foreordained, just like Abraham, Moses, Jeremiah, Isaiah, John the Baptist, and the Apostle Paul. Remember what Jesus told the disciples in John 15, 16? He said, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. God sovereignly chose these individuals, and folks, that has always been God's pattern. He chose Israel. He chose the apostles. He chooses his church, and he chooses those who serve him within his church. So we who are representing him are those who are called according to his purpose. Second, not only were they sovereignly chosen, but they were chosen after a night of prayer. They were chosen after a night of prayer. Yes, Christ chose those who had been ordained to that office, but in submission to his Father, he had occurred only after he sought the Father's will. Jesus sought the Father's will in everything he did doing nothing independently or on his own initiative. That's extremely important for us in terms of discipling others or choosing who will be elders in this church. Before we select those who we will pour our lives into for such purposes, it should be only after great prayer so that we can discern God's will in that regard. <clears throat> Listen to Luke 6, 12 and 13. It says, it was at that time that he went off to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also named his apostles. They were chosen sovereignly, and they were chosen after a night of prayer, after the submissive son in his humility sought only the will of the Father. And in John 17, 6, he affirms that they were the ones the Father wanted him to choose. He says, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me. He affirmed that they were the gift of God. Remember that. Judas was one of them. And so these very special men who were chosen by God and affirmed by the Son after an entire night of prayer. And the reason I keep emphasizing Judas was one of them is there's so many Christians who think that he was sort of a mistake. No, Judas was not a mistake. It was in the sovereign purpose and plan of God from all eternity. Third, and this is what we will focus on primarily, 
they were chosen to be prepared and that preparation came through training. Training's an essential part. They weren't chosen simply to be sent out. There had to be a training time. And for them, it was a training period of three years. And during that time, they traveled with him. They listened to him. They were instructed by him. They left their nets, boats, crops, businesses. And in Matthew's case, he left his tax collector's booth. They left it all behind. Peter even acknowledged that in Mark 10, 28. He said, behold, we have left everything and followed you. I'm sure there were plenty of critics who looked at Jesus and this bunch of guys and thought, why aren't these guys working? Why are they here sponging off of the gifts of others instead of doing something that's profitable? One Bible scholar wrote about it this way. Quote, he said, they have no occupation. They've given up the pursuits in which they were engaged, their fishing, their tax gathering, and their agriculture. They carry on no business. They simply walk around and behind their leader, talking to each other or to him. And when he speaks to people who begin to gather, they listen just like everybody else. The only thing they do is go with him from place to place. They are idle. And it begins to be a question of whether or not it is doing harm and giving rise to reproach that 12 grown men are being kept idle for no apparent purpose and neglecting obvious duties in order to do so, end quote. So you've got 12 grown men just roaming around like a bunch of freeloaders. I imagine some of the people in the Jewish society looked at it that way. But on the other hand, there has to be training. There are a lot of people who come to faith in Christ and perhaps they feel the call to ministry. But instead of getting some training, they're kind of like the guy who jumped on his horse and ran off, rode off madly in all directions. You know, they, they want to go. They don't know where to go or what to do. And there have been a lot of failures in ministry by men who did that. Jesus knew that these men needed to be trained, to be taught, to learn before they could be sent. Remember, God sent Moses out into the desert to lead a bunch of sheep and goats for 40 years before bringing him back to lead a bunch of Israelites out of Egypt. God sent the apostle Paul into the deserts of Arabia for three years to be trained. And Jesus spent three years training this bunch of men. Some of us spent three, four, five, or even more years in seminary. Others have spent years not in a formal education setting, but in learning the Word of God under the discipleship of a mature Christian. I've, I've told you before about the training program we have here at Lakeside for men who we perceive that God is called to be elders in this church. We always, there's always exceptions, but generally it's two years long. It involves many hours of reading theological books writing doctrinal statements, meeting with elders individually for discipleship, teaching in Sunday school classes, attending meetings with all the elders to gain an understanding of our thought processes and viewpoints. So there has to be a time of training before one can be sent. And I can't imagine any kind of training that, that would be better than that provided by the Lord Jesus himself, right? Listen, learning doesn't happen just because you sit in a class and hear a lecture. I think a lot of churches think that if a guy went to a Bible college or seminary, he's qualified to be a pastor. Nothing could be further from the truth. That's why we developed our elder training program here at the church, because learning really happens when you watch a godly man walk through a life of ministry in various situations. That's when you learn. You learn from the pattern, from the consistency of life, from seeing how he ministers to those in need of grace and those in need of rebuke. That's what discipleship is. It isn't 10 weeks in a class. It's walking with a godly person and feeling 
their heartbeat for others and for the church and hearing them speak and pray and minister to others. It involves spending time with them. I recall that over 20 years ago, when we were hiring Spencer King to be our youth pastor, Steve called Phil Johnson and asked him if there was anyone at Grace Community Church who might be interested in the job. And Phil's sons, who were teenagers at the time, immediately identified Spencer as a great guy for the job. But Phil didn't work with or know Spencer that well. So he went to Rick Holland, another elder who had discipled Spencer and then oversaw his work in the youth ministry at Christ Community Church and asked him about Spencer. And Rick Holland's response was, he's the best discipler I've ever seen. Well, after God worked in Spencer's heart to convince him to come here, and we got to know him and watch him work, we have come to the same conclusion. Spencer is the best discipler we've ever seen. How so? Because he involves these young men in his life. He not only teaches them the word, but he leads them through the struggles of life and shows them how to overcome problems, how to minister to others, how to apply the word in daily life to specific problems. And through his ministry, there are several young men who have gone on to full-time ministry because of his discipleship. Yes, he's had dozens of failures and washouts, but he never stops pouring his life and the word into young people. And God calls out those he chooses to go on to serve him in vocational Christian ministry. That's what being a disciple maker is all about. Yes. I think over the 20 years, it's amazing how many parents Spencer has trained. Like the ones who are working with the youth, he's training them how to be a youth leader, I mean, and how to work there. And many times they grow out of that ministry with their children, and then new groups come in. So it's been years that he's been training leaders. Mm -hmm. Or new teachers that come in the school and they have a heart for youth and he trains them to be youth leaders. Yep. It's just one right after the other. I, I could name names. I won't do it right now. But now I'll be frank with you. It wasn't an easy job for the Lord to train this bunch of guys. Their leader, their leader, Peter, still didn't have a clue what he was doing even after the resurrection. I mean, they are really a defective bunch. And it's good to see their defects because it gives hope that God can use us too. Now, when training these guys, I said Jesus had to deal with five basic inadequacies in them, and it's the same with us and the people we disciple. First, they lack spiritual understanding. He's going to work with 12 guys who are, supposed to, who are supposed to go evangelize the world, but they have one basic problem. They don't understand spiritual truth. That's a tough way to begin, and that's exactly what he, he had. They were blind, dull, hard-headed, stubborn, and stupid. They were, as Steve, they were, as Steve Kreloff dubbed them years ago, when he taught a series on them, he did dub them the defective dozen. As if you read through the Gospels, you see that over and over, Jesus asked them the same question. Do you not yet understand? And they always said, yes, we understand. But did they? No, not at all. They were so dull, they didn't know that they didn't understand. They didn't understand the parables. They didn't understand the precepts he taught because it was so hard to get through all of their prejudices and their preconceptions. In Matthew 15, 15, Peter said to him, explain the parable to us. And Jesus says, are you still lacking in understanding? I mean, you sense a, a, a certain degree of frustration there. 
he was rebuking them saying, haven't you got it yet? That's a great lesson for us about listening carefully to what we are being taught and thinking through it analytically. I know that Steve and I have discussed many times the frustration of pouring out your heart, teaching a lesson or giving a sermon, only to have someone come up to you immediately afterwards and ask you a question that you clearly answered in the lesson or sermon. You, want, you just want to say, weren't you listening? I just spent 10 minutes giving the answer to your question. But you don't say that. You know, what I usually say is, well, as I just said in the lesson, <laughs> and then I explain it again. And I've had several of them say, oh, I must have missed that. It gives you an appreciation for what Jesus went through with the disciples. He taught them over and over and over again, but they continually lacked understanding. It was as if they weren't really listening. <clears throat> Let me give you an example of just how dull the disciples really were. Turn over to Luke 18 for a minute. Luke 18, and let's start reading in verse 31. We're now closing in on the end of Jesus' earthly ministry, and he's teaching them. And the text says, Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and all the things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. Now that should have been a clue. They should have been thinking, Oh, we know what the prophets said, so we can figure this out. And now in verse 32, he tells them exactly what's going to happen to him. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day he will rise again. <clears throat> Couldn't, could that be more plain? All of that has been prophesied in the Old Testament. Some of it explicitly, some of it veiled, but it's all there. And he tells them directly and specifically what's going to happen. But look at verse 34. But the disciples understood none of these things. And the meaning of this statement was hidden from them. And they did not comprehend the things that were said. You know, if I had been the Lord, I might have been wondering at that point, Father, are you sure these are the right guys? I mean, they've been hanging around me for three years, and yet they still don't understand any of this when I tell them directly and explicitly. What's the lesson for us? It's this. When you're teaching and discipling others, don't be fooled by those who tell you they understand what you're saying. Be sure they do. Don't think your teaching and instruction is so good that those who you are teaching understand you completely and thoroughly. The 12 disciples didn't understand the greatest teacher in the entire universe who taught them continually for three years. So don't think those you are teaching or discipling are automatically going to grasp and comprehend what you were telling them. You may need to go back over and over the same things again and again for some of them before they finally get it. So the disciples didn't grasp the parables. They didn't grasp the precepts. They didn't even understand the coming suffering of Christ. In John 13, Jesus humbles himself and washed their feet. And when he got to Peter, what's Peter say? You're never going to wash my feet. Jesus says, Peter, you don't understand what I'm doing, do you? You don't understand, but you'll understand in the future. In Matthew 16, when Jesus first began to tell the disciples of his coming death in Jerusalem, verse 22 tells us, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. To which Jesus replies, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block to me, for you're not setting your mind on God's interest, but man's. That's the way, it's always, that's the way it always went. And even after the resurrection and Peter had seen the risen Christ, what does he do? John 21, 1. 
Simon Peter said to them, the other disciples, I'm going fishing. And instead of saying, what in the world are you thinking, Peter? That's ridiculous. The Lord is risen. Let's wait to hear from him what he wants us to do. No, what do they say? They said to him, we'll also come with you. They all went right back to where they started. And Jesus comes up there, reroutes all the fish in the sea so that none of them are near their boats or nets. He's teaching them that fishing wasn't in their future. They suffered from a lack of understanding. They didn't understand their role. They didn't understand the purpose of Christ's sufferings. They didn't understand the principles. They didn't understand the parables. And that's part of the discipleship process. You have to overcome that in those who you are teaching. How did Jesus deal with their dull-headedness and lack of spiritual understanding? Simply by teaching and teaching and teaching and teaching and teaching. He never stopped. In fact, when he came back after his resurrection, Acts 1-3 says he appeared to them over a period of 40 days, speaking of the things pertaining concerning the kingdom of God. So even after his resurrection and before his ascension, he's still teaching them. His way of dealing with a lack of understanding was constant instruction. You know, through the years, people have said many times to us here at the elders at Lakeside, all you guys do at Lakeside is teach, teach, teach. Why don't you do some of these other exciting, nifty things we see at other churches? We teach because, folks, teaching you the word is how you learn. You were, we aren't here to be a social club or a political rally or a group therapy session or anything like that. We are here to learn the Word of God and to apply it to our lives. And we do that through the pulpit, through the Sunday school classes, the counseling ministry, the various Bible studies, the elder Q&As, and other ministries. That's how you overcome a lack of spiritual understanding by instruction and application of the Word. Disciples had a second problem, though. It's a lack of humility lack of humility. They were a proud, jealous, envious bunch. You can almost see the Lord walking down the road and they're walking behind him all follower, as, as all followers of a Jewish rabbi did, arguing and debating and telling one another about how much more spiritual important they, each one of them was to him. Now, if you don't think that's what was going on, look over at Mark 9 for a minute. Mark chapter 9 beginning in verse 33. 933, Mark 933. It says, They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he began to question them, What were you discussing on the way? Now, that word translated discussing is used here in the sense of to argue, to debate, to dispute, to contend with others. So Jesus asked them, what were you guys arguing about behind my back? Now he knew that they were back there squabbling among themselves and he knew what it was about and he wants them to learn an important lesson. Look at verse 34. But they kept silent for on the way they had discussed with one another which one of them was the greatest. <laughs> now they're a really selfless, humble bunch, aren't they? All the time that Jesus is walking along, they're back there fighting among themselves about who was the most important guy in the group. So look what Jesus does to them. Verse 35. Sitting down, he called the twelve and said to them, If anyone wants to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Taking a child, he set him before him, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me, and whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. So he rebuked them, and he gave them a lesson on true humility. Look over at Matthew 20. Matthew 20, 
the contest over who was the greatest got even more intense. Probably at the prompting of her sons, Mrs. Zebedee comes to Jesus. Verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, What do you wish? She said, Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. Now that's really brash. These two guys, who were known as the sons of thunder for their bold, harsh, rash approach with others, wanted the biggest positions of authority in Christ's kingdom, so they go get their mama to go ask for them. They knew better than to ask for themselves because they knew that what Jesus would say, so instead they get their mama to go. They're probably standing off at the side acting as if they didn't know anything about it. But it becomes clear as we read along that they were the instigators of the whole thing. Verse 22, but Jesus answered, you do not know what you were asking. Are you able to drink the cup I'm about to drink? Now look how tough they really think they are. Here's how arrogant they were. They said to him, we're able. In other words, Lord, of course we can handle it. We can handle anything. We're the, two, the best two guys you've got. Verse 23. He said to them, My cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those to whom it has been prepared by my Father. He says, All right then, you'll drink the cup that I drink. He's talking about martyrdom and persecution and exile. James was martyred. John was persecuted in exile. So he says, you're going to go through the pain and the suffering and anguish just like me. But so far as sitting next to me, those seats aren't mine to give. That's up to God the Father. And then we come to verse 24. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. <laughs> Why? Was it because they just couldn't stand such arrogance and pride? No. It's because It was because James and John thought they deserved it more than they did. They wanted those two spots in the kingdom, and they didn't like being outsmarted by the sons of thunder by having their mother ask for them. Their indignation wasn't righteous. It was selfish. And so Jesus says to them, verse 25, But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not that way among this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Did you notice verse 27? He says, if you want to be the kind of people who get to sit at my right hand and my left hand, you need to be as humble as a slave. Those are the ones who get to be in first place. So he had to deal with their lack of humility. How did he deal with it? He dealt with it by giving them a demonstration of his own humility. He likened himself to a little child in Mark 9. He likened himself here in Matthew 20 to a slave. In John 13, he washed their feet, and then he said, you should act in the same way towards one another as I have done. And he said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another even as I loved you that you also love one another so whereas he overcame their lack of understanding by teaching he overcame their lack of humility by example he used an example of his own life as a teaching tool well i thought i'd get further but we're not so we will stop and pick it up here next week but before we go we have a minute or two any comments or questions on anything that uh, we covered. Yes, Richard. Uh, it would seem, I, I've never heard this from anybody, but it would seem to me that people would think that the Apostle Paul was the solution to this problem you're talking about. And I know we're not going to get into that now. But, uh, what do you mean the solution? Well, Paul had the education. He oh, the, oh, all of the... He had the credentials, so to speak. In other words, you'd pick Paul. 
for that position. Well, except for the fact that he was out killing uh, your people. You, you might not want to pick the guy who's out killing the Christians. Yeah. Yes, Ingrid. What was what's the transformational moments for these guys? After his resurrection, he teaches them, and then the Holy Spirit completely transforms them. Then they became what he intended for them to be. And folks, listen to it carefully. You, as a believer in Jesus Christ, have that same Holy Spirit residing in you. Frank, I saw your hand. No, you, you did. I was going to say the key element with Paul and the key element with the apostles, everything, the key element was the Holy Spirit. Before yeah. that, yes, they were stupid and stubborn. <laughs> when the Holy Spirit came upon them, they were radically transformed. Yeah. Yeah. I think Wait, that's the key. I hesitate to ask this because you probably just said it. <laughs> but you said that you were going to list the problems that, that, that he had to overcome in the, in the apostles and you gave number two but I missed number one number one was their lack of spiritual understanding thank you yes Ingrid sorry to uh, just add on that Dr. Barker wrote a little book he talks about how even when we have the Holy Spirit, he uses Alka-Seltzer to represent the Holy Spirit. And unless you keep, he says, and the Word of God is like water, that we as believers can have the Holy Spirit, but it is not active until you start putting it to water. And that is, so even as believers, we may be ineffective unless we're constantly putting in the water and abiding in Christ. Anyway, that was his example. So even with the Holy Spirit, we still may be ineffective unless we're doing the part of abiding. But I see what you're saying. I'm just saying that that was a neat little picture. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's close. Let me uh, close with prayer, and we will be dismissed.